Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to Die Hard on a Blank, the podcast where we explore the influence of Die Hard on action cinema, one action movie at a time. I'm Philip Gawthorne, and with me as always is Liam Billingham, and our film today is Last Action Hero. It's Die Hard in a deconstructionist, meta, fantasy, dirtbag action movie satire. Very slick. Thank you. Yeah, I really <laughs> yeah. thought about that for Crisp. hours. Yeah, yeah, really. Wow, you really edited yourself there, Liam. Uh, no, I think that's an important uh, a metaphor for the movie that we're about to talk about, which is uh, complicated. It certainly is. Certainly complicated. Are you... Uh, this is our first Arnold movie. It's our first Arnold. I can't believe that we've gone this many movies into the into the deep action movie vault and right. yet to come across Mr. Schwarzenegger. Well, it is fair to say that a lot of his, well, his biggest hits came, but there's a little bit of a fallow period uh, to some extent in the action genre specifically because he's quite a capable actor, not only in the acting genre, but also in comedy, as this movie proves. But we haven't had an Arnold movie because he's been doing other stuff in this period of yeah. time. It, I, and I want to say sort of right off the bat, Arnold Schwarzenegger was my favorite movie star as a kid. Mm -hmm. And to some extent, kind of still is my favorite movie star. I'm shocked Bruce Willis was not your favorite movie star. I mean, it's complicated, but, you know, I didn't get into the Bruce Willis stuff until a little later. I was more of a teenager when when I was more into the the Bruce stuff. But Arnold, you know, Arnold was a star first. Yeah. Right? Like, Bruce Willis didn't become a star until 1988. Arnold was kind of a star, really, by Conan in 1982. Right. The Terminator, which was 84, I would say, was, is probably the most influential film on my entire life. I think that's true for a lot of people born in a certain generation and of a certain age. Arnold is, is the most important movie star of the 80s, probably, at least in terms of the films that we're discussing on this yeah, he this kind of helped podcast. shape the genre. Obviously, we've talked about Stallone uh, on our cliffhanger episode, uh, Bruce Willis uh, later on in that decade. But, you know, for me, Arnold really, I, I couldn't love him anymore. He's very much on the minds of the the the, the, the world psyche right now with the Netflix documentary. Yeah, I was going to say, honestly, he's have, there's a bit of an Arnold sense going on yeah. right now. There's the Netflix documentary Arnold, of which I've watched the first two parts, and I think is just great and is causing me to reflect it's fantastic on him there's a new book out called last action heroes which uh it's excellent yeah which is excellent and and we're, we'll probably talk about a little here and also you know he has a new series on netflix beyond the documentary called fubar which is sort of like as we're seeing a lot in the culture right now the aging action star kind of vehicle but also like true lies is just on hulu recently another film that we'll be doing um, yeah, I love that in movie. The not too distant future. I love that movie. I love it Last too. Last Action Hero, um, Terminator Two is, is perennially on Netflix. It feels like there's a lot. Like Arnold is in the air, and I would yeah. say that this genre is in the air. You know, so there's a lot of people looking back nostalgically 
on the 80s. And the documentary looks back on him both with some nostalgia and also, you know, sort of on his life and, and the ups and downs of that. I, I I think what I've seen in the documentary has really helped to re-trigger, beyond watching this movie, kind of how I felt about Arnold in the 80s, which is he was kind of like... um ubiquitous like he was everywhere there was you know he was such an important part of the culture and the movies are all incredible and i think sometimes he gets remembered as kind of just being this like monosyllabic act i mean the terminator the influence the terminator has had on on him professionally at least as an actor is this kind of like monosyllabic figure but he's so funny he's funny in this movie right like he's just a much more dynamic actor and and really quite a, a compelling charismatic human being and i was glad to revisit this i think he's a brilliant person yeah, yeah. you know and the documentary really brings to light his um tremendous uh clarity of vision clarity of purpose how he's able to mold himself intellectually and physically into these different things one of the things i really always always admired about arnold as an actor was that he was sort of egoless on set in the sense that he would wanted tough directors that would push him yeah. and do as many takes as he needed. And that's when you got his best work with Cameron, with McTiernan in Predator, with Paul Verhoeven in Total Recall, you know, um, and you put those movies against anything in the sci-fi action genre and they're at the absolute peak. Well, and think about the breadth of what you just said in terms of directors. Like there's an, there's an easy way to group... Verhoeven, Cameron, and McTiernan into the same sort of broad category because they are broadly all action directors. But like, you know, Cameron is a very distinct entity from McTiernan. And then I would say further to the left, in many ways, you have Verhoeven. And like, they all found something in Arnold that was distinct. You know, I would say, obviously, Cameron sort of, especially in those first two films, sort of saw his ability to move like a machine, like a killing machine, and really exploited that, and then turns it into like a really cathartic conclusion in Terminator 2, right? And then you have McTiernan, who who does something different with him, and then Verhoeven, who saw him as this like incredible figure for the kind of like action movie satire that he's capable of as a as an artist like they really found things to do with him exactly i think there's a lot could. more depth to him than maybe meets the eye and i love a lot of his 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 less uh, venerated work as well like i i was actually involved at one point with um I wanted to remake Raw Deal, and I, I worked with De Laurentiis on that for a while. I loved Raw Deal. Uh, I love Red Heat. I Obviously, I love Commando. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, so the point is, I fucking love the guy. Hey, keep it clean. And it's a podcast for kids. It's not. Is it? No. <laughs> is it? It's no. absolutely not. No, um, it's not. I love the guy. So picture the scene. I'm like 12 years old in 1993. Um, I'm the age, basically, of the character in this movie, da Danny... Um, Madigan. Danny Madigan, played by Austin O'Brien. So I basically am this kid. And we go over to, like, I'm Arnold superfan, action movie superfan, cannot wait to see this. We go over to my friend Steven's house because we'd rented the, the the video, and a bunch of us are there. I think it might have been his birthday or something. You know, this is something that would go on yeah. in, in the early 90s, right? You'd rent a movie, and that would be the focus of the of the evening. And we all gather Halcyon around. Halcyon days. Bunch of 12-year-old lads. We're going to watch the new Arnold movie. You're pumped a, up. You're pumped up. I'm and in sorry, 20 good. minutes, we are so bored huh. of this film huh. and the sad thing about like uh, this is one of the best ideas one of the best concepts with an incredible director 
an incredible iconic movie star at the peak of his powers. Shane Black working on the script. Incredible supporting cast. And this might be the first time that we are are, are on opposite sides of the aisle on this show because... I hate this movie. Well, I don't love this movie. I actually, so I have a fondness for this movie. I grew up watching it. I think we can talk about this, you know, now or later, but I think, hmm, oh, challenging family life meets boy obsessed with movies who wants to like enter the the movies is, is, is speaks exactly to who I am as a person. Um, and so it, it resonates with me. And as a kid, I th- I felt in some ways like this movie could do no wrong. And I thought it was very clever. You know, watching it now as a 40-year-old adult, uh, I wouldn't say it works quite as well. But I have a real fondness for this movie. And I think as typical, it might not be the achievement that, you know, it was when I was 12. But there's still no one more ambitious and smarter than John McTiernan in terms of what he can do. It's like he defined a certain type of movie with Die Hard and Predator and The Hunt for October because this is our third McTiernan movie. Um, And then he attempted to do something with Last Action Hero that I think has like crazy resonance for what all movies are today. But Let's save that. Yes. Should we, Phil? Would you like to give us some top line facts about yeah. the film? Yeah, let's put this Last in, Action let's Hero. Put this in context. So, Last Action Hero just celebrated its thirtieth anniversary. I'm so old. As we discussed, it's very much in the zeitgeist right now. It's actually, we should say for our LA listeners, yeah. uh, this episode I think comes out the day before. It screens in 70 millimeter at the American Cinematheque as part of a tribute to Tina Turner, who plays the mayor in this film. I've never seen this movie on the big screen. I have never, certainly have never seen it in 70 millimeter. I will be out of town. But if I were here, I'd probably be like, Phil, let's let's get the gang together and go see Last Action And Hero. I would give you some excuse because yeah, I don't like, want to see this oh, movie ever again. Oh, I was. Um, I have to wash my hair. <laughs> I have to clean my Glock that day. So it was, uh, to be clear, I do not own guns. Well, it's because he has a Glock. So I thought it was fine. I have to um, clean my axe. <laughs> I have to bang axes in a swimming pool exactly. in, in, as a tribute to I have Cobra. to go to Leo the Fart's um, funeral. <laughs> So, um, yeah, so this movie was released on um, June 17th, 1993, um, distributed by Columbia Pictures. Um, It was approximately, that was approximately three weeks after our last film, Cliffhanger, which came out May 28th of that year. And we're now five years after the release of Die Hard, which was the summer of 1988. It was directed by John McTiernan, who also produced with Steve Roth. It stars... Arnold Schwarzenegger, Austin O'Brien, Charles Dance, and many more to be discussed. Um, The screenplay was written by Shane Black and David Arnott from a story by Zach Penn and Adam Leff. That's the official credit. There's a lot more to it. As you may know, this was a spec script called Extremely Violent uh, originally and went through many, many writers, but those are the, the actual credits on screen. Um, on an estimated budget of 85 million, it grossed 50 million domestic uh, 100, and a total of 137 million worldwide. That was, is low for was, a Schwarzenegger movie. Was therefore a major box office disappointment in the summer of '93, uh, which was, of course, dominated by Jurassic Park. Do you have any idea? Oh, yeah, this was a good time. Do you can imagine releasing this movie three weeks after Cliffhanger? Halcyon days. Do you have a sense of how it did on home video? 
Because I feel like it was probably probably did pretty well. I think it probably well. did well, and 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 it has a kind of those figures tend to be like you can't really um, quantify them, um, or at least there's no immediate like data for you know home rentals and that kind of thing. It's a little bit more com complicated, but it has had a cultural like resurgence yes. over over the years that a lot of people have felt this film was underrated, and actually it was sort of unfairly maligned. And I'm sorry to say <laughs> it's not. Uh, and I'm going to tell you scientifically in my humble opinion why this film doesn't work from someone that is an Arnold superfan and a McTiernan superfan I'm doing a whole podcast about John McTiernan and the, the, what he did and I still cannot like I cannot defend this movie now I will say to your point there's genius in the movie right there's magic here and we're going to try and unpack that but I have to be like the, one of the tenets of this of this thing we, we live, live in a twilight, twilight world, world. <laughs> one of the tenets <laughs> of our show is every film gets a fair trial regardless of its reputation. Right. I could give a fuck about the prevailing wins, whether they're good or bad at any point in history, right? I, I don't care about that. I, I, whether people are saying, oh, this film is actually like a lost cult classic or whether they're saying this film sucks. I like to give it a completely fair, fair trial. Before you do that, Maybe yes. some folks have stumbled upon this podcast after seeing the film in American Cinematheque on 70mm. Maybe they're last action hero heads. Maybe they're fuming right now for what you just said. But for those that don't know, yes. I have two questions. One, <laughs> what does Die Hard on a Blank mean? And two, hmm. why is this film on why are we talking about this film on this podcast? Good question. Oh, thank you. Uh -huh. So yes, the term Die Hard on a Blank is the cultural or industry shorthand for any film that utilizes uh, the storytelling paradigm broadly of bad guys take over a blank building, bus, space hopper, ice cream uh, truck, whatever it might be, podcast Hot dog, studio, uh, vendor, taco truck. Um, taco truck. Taco truck? Ooh, I Die love hard it. on a taco truck. What would that be called? Let's workshop this. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I like that. I don't know so, what it would be called. Broadly, uh, any film that uh, utilizes that particular formula in some, in some way, shape, or form. Um, now, at first film, blush, this film does not appear to be correct. a diehard on a... You know, we joked at the beginning that it's a deconstructionist meta-fantasy series, but why this film? Well... This brings us to a section, speaking of Jurassic Park, the film that ultimately destroyed this film. Die Hard DNA. <laughs> we like to call Die Hard DNA. Die Hard DNA. Where we unpack that. Wait, real quick, real quick. I have to. Did you see Jurassic Park in the theater? I did. How many times? Uh, just once, but I remember it vividly. Me too. I remember just being like, I saw it once. I don't think I went back to movies that much as a kid because I had no autonomy and that I didn't own a car and I was 11 or whatever. But. I saw it with my dad on a Saturday morning. I remember it so clearly. It's like one of those experiences that you're like, holy shit, that just changed movies. Like the the first time you saw the T-Rex hit the hit the trucks, the first time you see the T-Rex in that movie, oh my God. I, t I, I was thinking about that, this exact thing because I remember it uh, um, very vividly. It was my 12th birthday uh. and I went with my dad and we went to the Deep Pan Pizza Company, which was like the pizza <laughs> of its time. <laughs> <That's> amazing. <laughs> right? Yes. Uh, which was like, I couldn't have been happier and went with my dad and, and a slightly odd lady in the Deep Pan Pizza Company kind of ingratiated herself with us and, and we had to indulge her for the whole for the whole meal. So I remember oh, all these weird. details, which was very weird. And then we went to see the movie. It was absolutely incredible. I remember particularly the whole thing of like the film was so clever with its climax because it was like it it made you sort of fall in love with the T-Rex as a as an adversary That's and then point. ultimately the T-Rex becomes the savior right. against the raptors and that was just so 
brilliant. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I mean, the movie's incredible. Raptors are the dick of, the mo- of that movie. Yeah, that's yeah, a, for sure. Die Hard in a Jurassic Park. I also wonder if you absolutely lost it because the final thing you see is two helicopters flying across oh, yeah, the I, sunset. I lost it, like, yeah, no, immediately. It, it's, so, it's incredible. But, but I remember, funnily enough, I think one of the writers called the head of the studio when this film was pitted against Jurassic Park and said, there's a big problem here because I want to see Jurassic Park more than Last Action Hero, and I wrote Last Action Hero. That's so, true. That was in the oral history that yeah. Nick DeSemlian wrote, that there was this, man, what a time. I wonder if it would have been different if the, would have been different if the timing had been different. You know, there are all these sort of but like the, random it, things. I think it's definitely a giant, a giant factor, right? But the big problem with this movie, I think, was that people saw it and they realized it was bad. They burnt the test cards of this movie, Oof. right? It, the film doesn't work. I burnt the okay? test cards of this podcast, though. So, like, well, we all have to, we all have to do what we have to do. Well, why don't we talk about the diehard DNA yeah. so you can just okay. stop shitting all over all right, this no, movie? No, I'm not. I, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm coming at it from a place of... Wanting to unlock the genius that's in this movie. Right. Me too. Okay. All right. So, um, obviously, in terms of Die Hard DNA, same director as Die Hard, John McTiernan, same uh, composer, Michael Kamen. Uh, several actors appear in both films. Uh, Rick Ducuman, Plays, you remember our, our old friend? He's the telephone guy in Die Hard, and in this film, he's in the police station? He he's um, Tom Noonan's Hollywood agent at the premiere. He's got I think he's got a little ponytail. <laughs> he's like, what are you, why are you here in character? Yeah. You trying to kill your career? Yeah, I forgot. He's just a delight. Tom Noonan. Um, lot to lot to talk about with him. So Rick DeCumman, who has also appeared in um, Hunt for Red October, uh, he's the city worker in Die Hard. Um, McTiernan staple Anthony Peck, who plays the young cop in Die Hard, and Detective Ricky Vol- Ricky Walsh in Die Hard with a Vengeance. I love this guy. Also, re- also he's also in Hunt for Red October. Yep. Returns here as an LAPD officer who, funnily enough, gets blown up when he turns the glass eye that says, Vengeance is mine. Little now, precursor he... there to his Die Hard 3 appearance. That's true. And also he, and just to be clear, in the Hunt for Red October, because I think it's his most memorable part, yes. is the second in command Correct. to um, Scott. Scott Glenn, Glenn yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's yeah. He's, he's got a he's prominent a... role in that, and a prominent role in Die Hard with a Vengeance. Um, he's only got a small part in Die Hard as uh, like Al Powell's kind of buddy who's in the background, and he goes like, eh, "Something about a double cross." Yeah, 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 that yeah. Guy. He has a few lines, but yeah, he's not. He, a major... McTiernan loved him. Yeah. Um, we also have uh, Alion Endo, who plays candy lo- candy bar loving terror thief Uli in yes. Die Hard, and appears here uncredited. There's a uh, noodle restaurant in New York City that has photos of Al Leong all over the wall. It's one of David Chang's restaurants. And I went in there once and I was like, oh. And I had to explain to my wife who Al Leong I wonder if was. he ate Nestle Crunch Bars just like <laughs> nonstop. One of the great there. moments, one of the great character moments in Die Hard. Um, we also have the uh, classical music motif is used again. Obviously in Die Hard it was uh, Beethoven. Here it's Mozart or Mozart. Uh, Mozart. Uh, to reference one of the film's many eye-rolling quote-unquote oh, gags. The... My name's Phil. I don't know how to have a good time. <laughs> is that true? No, you do. That's not true. When That's it comes not... to this movie, you don't. Yeah. Well, mm, okay. Um we also have the signature McTiernan shot it's a, of it's an uh, Amadeus of joke a, in an action movie. That doesn't get better. Than, I'm sorry, <laughs> I just does. It does. It does. Uh, yeah, yeah. 
The signature McTiernan shot of a character falling from a great height, Mm. uh, which we talked about, began in Nomads, his first movie. Most iconically, Gruber uh, falling off Nakatomi Plaza. Also, Alec Baldwin uh, jumping into the ocean off the uh, the, the helicopter in Humphrey October. McTiernan's scared of heights, maybe. Um, Yeah, we talked about that a bit in our Red October episode. In this one, Arnold falls. It's on the scene where Arnold falls um, when he's hanging on the crane in the the sequence at the... That's a great shoot. Leo the Fart's funeral. Sequence. The fact that that uh, can't even go there. Right. Uh, it also ultimately why the big thing, other than the McTiernan connection and all these other things, this is playing with the conventions of the action genre that, of course, Die Hard helps cement. And it even starts with a very Die Hard like sequence: uh, police siege outside a building in LA, a body being thrown off the roof. Already, it's like the, te- the it's like. So off-putting, though. You know, that, it, it, there's children in peril. You know, a body is thrown off the roof. It's, it's to me, it's uh, straight away. The tone is like, who is this movie for? Right, and we'll, we'll, I mean, the Ripper as a character is complicated too, but yeah. we can we can get into that. And the final point is just, you know, Die Hard is even directly name-checked in the movie at one one point. There's a scene where uh, the kid is saying, they always look dead, like in Die Hard, right? Oh, you that's know? right. And there's actually a music cue from Die Hard used in that scene just to to. In the point. So this, even though this film's premise uh, isn't a classic uh, Die Hard on a Blank scenario, it is chock full of Die Hard DNA. Um, yeah. I mean, what? What? So the thing that's interesting is we we're recording this episode a little later than we normally do, and like, so we've been thinking about this movie a lot. So when do we get into the argument? Should we? Should we? Should we well, do our? Should we? Should we? Should we do our anatomy of an action movie first? Okay. So Phil has devised a list of tenants. We live in a twilight world, and there are no friends at dusk. <laughs> uh, of his uh, tenants of his own design, uh, called Anatomy of an Action Movie, and he's going to take us through those the 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 building blocks that yes. make up an action film, and yes. they are the premise, the ticking clock, which is sort of the. A thing that keeps the the film in motion, right? It could be that the bus can't drop below fifty miles per hour, or it could be that they're uh, the terrorists are going to blow up the roof, killing all the hostages. Something that keeps the forward momentum going. The hero, the villain, the action. This is an action movie podcast, after all. The humor, and an occasional. But now I think it's become a regular part of it, which is she's a lady. <laughs> Whoa, whoa, whoa. She's a lady. Oh, my God. This is unhinged. I love it. <laughs> the lady, which is where we, we take a minute to reflect on, you know, the the maybe the gender politics of some of these movie, w- movies, which are not often always. Often not great. Often yeah. not great. And also because uh, some of these movies feature absolutely kick-ass, kick-ass actresses, including mm-hmm. this movie, in my opinion. Phil just gave me a look. Uh, so let's talk about it. The anatomy of an action yes. movie. So, Phil. Yes. Tell me, what's the premise okay. of... Last action. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so the premise is, thanks to a magic ticket, film-obsessed kid Danny gets sucked into the world of an action movie and has to team up with his favorite action hero, Jack Slater, using his encyclopedic knowledge of the genre to help solve the case, defeat the bad guy, and save the day. Genius. Great okay? premise. And the ticking clock that's connected to that is... After the evil mob henchman Benedict, played by Charles Dance, uses the magic ticket to cross over into the real world, Danny and Jack have to get it back before this now all-powerful bad guy does something really terrible, like bring the worst villains in movie history over into our reality. Now, one thing I want to pause and talk about is that, again, to bring it up, the American Cinematheque description of this movie begins with grieving the loss of his father. 
Danny Madigan escapes into movies. And I thought it was interesting that that description emphasizes that because although that's part of the movie, his father has passed away because his mother, who I think is great in this movie. Oh, I adore her. Um, Absolutely love her. Says I'll, something I'll, about, do you think I'd want to be like a 39-year-old widower or whatever the case was? But the movie doesn't do much, honestly, with... It's one of the many missed opportunities mm. in this movie that I want to talk about because the father-son stuff is right there as low-hanging fruit and they don't, they they fumble it. Mm. And only at the last gasp do they realize, oh shit, it was right there. It was and, right there. And they try and go for this the unearned the emotional station. finale where it's supposed to be, they have this big connection. It's like, because Jack Slater's character has uh, the fictitious uh, character within the film uh, has lost his son, right? right? And Danny Madigan has lost his father. Hello, do you want to connect those dots? Like emotionally, that should be the emotional heart of the whole fucking movie. Like, what are we doing here? Anyway, all right. So you like I, I gotta this dial movie? It back. I gotta, <laughs> you gotta chill. That out just me. frustrates me because it's so. It elements are all there. Yeah, no, I agree. You know. So tell me, tell, take me through what. Okay, we're 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 we're. I don't know if we're a hundred percent at odds here, but. You know, according to our notes here, you're going to present the case for the prosecution and I'm going to attempt to defend this movie. Now, I don't know if I'm ultimately going to defend this movie, but I would like to emphasize what I think is very interesting about it. But first, hmm. why don't you tell me what works, what doesn't work beyond what we've already said? And maybe you could talk a little bit about like the the history of the, of the script, the screenwriting and particularly the script doctoring on this movie, right, which is something right. you'll get into. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Yeah, I thought it might be interesting to talk a little bit about what a script doctor does. This is something where, which which I have a little bit of experience in this world, obviously, I, I, as a screenwriter. It's often what we will experience as screenwriters is a quote-unquote uh, broken script, right, right, that will be sent to us. We know there's a concept here that's worth mining. We maybe have a star attached. We maybe have a director attached, almost always a production company, maybe even a studio. But you'll be sent a script that doesn't work, right, right. that has failed to, in their mind, has failed to execute on uh, the, the central conceit, right? right? And it's our job to uh, figure out how to solve that problem. And the script doctor terminology is very apt, right, because you ha it's a diagnostic. You have to identify identify where is the problem and what surgery needs to be performed in order to sort of rescue the patient, right? right. That's why they use that, that terminology. Now, this film um, is notorious for the amount of script doctors that worked on it. First of all, it started as a, a spec script by the then very um, inexperienced uh, writing team of uh, Zach Penn and Adam Leff. Zach Penn's gone on to have a fantastic career. Yeah. Um, is a staple of the Marvel Marvel verse. Um, I believe he also wrote uh, the Spielberg movie. Um, what what's the name of it? For based on the book, I'm forgetting that that was the sort of also a meta, um, multifaceted uh, set in the future. Why can't I think AI? of its name? No, no, no. More recently, Spielberg. Player one. Ready Player One. Oh, Ready Player One. Ready oh, Player One. I haven't seen that film. Um, 
so he wrote that. Um, it's yeah, thematically kind of similar. And then it was rewritten by uh, Shane Black and his writing uh, one of his writing partners, David David Arnott. Shane Black again, one of my ultimate heroes, one of the greats, one of the absolute greats, one of the best writers in this genre ever. Come on the pod. Uh, please do. Come on, the uh, let's go. Shane, let's go. Just, like, hope you'll forgi- yeah, yeah. forgive me. I know you're cause... listening right now, <laughs> Shane. But we love we Also love wrote my personal top, one of my favorite uh, Marvel movies, Iron Man 3, wrote and directed it. I think it's, a, it's almost a diehard on a Marvel movie kind of movie. And obviously we talked about Last Boy Scout and Long Kiss Goodnight and oh, Lethal yeah. Weapon. And I mean, know... Lethal Weapon is my favorite action movie of all time. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and Ooh, Nice Guy. Bang, you know, bang. the guy's an absolute nice guys, legend. Nice Guys. In Can genre. we get like 10 right. Nice Guys sequels, please, by the way? Yeah, it should have been the, the should have done that TV show they were oh, thinking about. They were going to do a TV show. Okay, anyway. Well, anyway, anyway, anyway. The point is, even just on face value, the writers involved are top tier. But right. And Carrie Fisher was a script. But that's what I was coming to. Uh, so they, they they Sorry. hired, uh, in addition to the, the, these these great writers that are actually on the, the ticket, no pun intended, they hired <laughs> yeah. the best and the brightest script doctors, including Carrie Fisher, uh, William Goldman, and uh, I believe Larry Ferguson, uh, who had written Beverly Hills Cop 2. William and, and Goldman I think, did a pass uh, on this? October. Wow. Um, so, yeah, the absolute creme de la creme. And this was one of the reasons why the film was dubbed in the, in the press at the time, Humpty Dumpty, because it was like all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Last Action Hero back together again. So right. what I thought might be interesting to do is talk a little bit about like perhaps now with the benefit of 30 years of hindsight it's the ultimate Monday morning quarterback you know situation but I can see with the benefit of critical distance um, perhaps how this film could have been saved and that's what first that's just what struck me watching it because I was like oh that was a I you know who cares about my, my opinion? But it was I would have done this. I would have said this. The key thing, and this this is worth getting your opinion on. I think what you have to start when you are fixing a broken script, a broke or a broken broken movie, because there's other production things that needed to be considered too. And by the way, these guys didn't have the benefit of thirty years of hindsight. It was nine months from green light to being in the theaters, which is way too fast. And we should also say that okay. in the world of narrative storytelling. On a, a film film level, the script is the most important thing. Like if the script, what's your foundation? Yeah, if it doesn't right? work, and like lots of movies get changed in production, and they, the classic adage is a film gets made three times when it's written, when it's shot, and when mm-hmm. it's edited. So all movies change. Like it's very rare that a movie is exactly the same as the script, right? But if the script doesn't have a good starting point, I think you're constantly in jeopardy because you're constantly doing, you know, there are some very, very big movies that have come out in the past, in the history of, of movies and the ones that didn't work. And a lot of the time is they never had a finished script. So that's often the problem yes. with big, big yes. movies is that the script was never finalized. They were rewriting in production. Well, I, cause problems. and this film is a classic example of what I like to call like, this isn't a movie. It's a release date, you know? Uh, Alien 3 was another example of a tortured production mm. that was like locked into a release date. They didn't have a finished script. Even Batman, which um, the, the Tim Burton 1989 yeah. Batman didn't have a finished script, although it turned out pretty Pretty, pretty great. goddamn great. Although I, there are some imperfections in the last act of that movie that were, I think, part of the race to just get it done. But this get is out of, just Get out a, of this um, podcast, too. I, I, I love it. Don't get me wrong. I absolutely love it. It's a great movie. But, but yeah, you know, yeah, sure. It's the, the third the, act thing. So anyway, the, the point... Where I think you have to start with this is just the core concept of what is the movie that we're telling? What's or what rather, what is the story that we're telling on an absolutely right. boiled down, the most simple, 
um, you Three know, sentence clean, statement, right? You know, summation of what is the emotional thrust of the story that we're telling. Mm -hmm. And I think what this movie should have been, to some extent, is The Wizard of Oz. Okay. Ah. Now, one of the early executives who I think one of the one of the first producers who came on board um, saw it in those terms. That's what he saw in the original script, extremely violent. And they even reference Wizard of Oz. There's a scene where in the scene where um, Arnold goes to Charles Dance's house and he's like, "Is the I would like to speak to the drug dealer of the house?" Yeah. Great, which is a great line. Yeah. Um, they there's a Wizard of Oz reference in that. There is in Toto the, in that scene, yeah. right? So it was it was in there. It was lingering around, but they didn't focus on it. Now tell now, me very quickly. Can yeah. I interrupt you? Yeah, yeah. What if if you, so? It sounds like what you're talking about is the story statement, which you know, uh, you know, I didn't go to writing school, but I went to directing school, and you learn as a director to take a script and then analyze it and say in a single sentence, what is this movie about, right? And usually it's from a you pick a main character and you talk a little bit about the the, the, ch the way they change over the yeah. course of the movie. So there's different ways to do it. There's different variations on it. But like what, in your point of view, and you know, this is a tangent, but I think it's an important one. What is the sort of, what is the Wizard of Oz about? Well, I would summar summarize it as thematically and emotionally, it's about the idea of there's no place like a home. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's about a character, a neophyte that, you know, is inexperienced in life. Uh, goes into a, is somewhat bored or dissatisfied with their normal life, mm -hmm. goes into a phantasmagoria, you know, fantastical world where they are suddenly elevated to sort of heroic status. Right. Uh, meets a bunch of colorful characters along the way, uh, learn, learns, gains courage, gains knowledge, gains wisdom about themselves, about the wider world, confronts a frightening villain, and returns to their home life are imbued with new uh, new knowledge um, and a better person for it and with a different perspective about the world and ultimately embracing the fact that there is no place like home. That's what I feel should have been the essence of this movie. But they they mishandle that, in my opinion, in a number of different ways. The first one being his Danny Madigan's home life is a dystopia, mm -hmm. right? Now... I get the thinking behind that, right? Because it's like, okay, that's why he craves the escapism of movies. Makes sense, right? But the problem is mul multiple to that. Later on in the movie, when they go, first of all, it's a horrible place to spend time, right? Yeah. Um, it's like this really jacked up, awful, fake, reactionary version of New York City yeah. that I think is kind of disgusting disgusting and simplistic like and as your point like it's painful like his house gets broken into his house gets like... broken into he's like assaulted by yeah. by a thief it's horrible on the streets yeah. it's very oppressive right yeah so again okay makes sense he craves uh the escapism. Escape, escapism okay and he's lost his his father as well so he's sort of dealing with that emotional trauma um but what that means for the story is when when we go into the quote unquote real world later in the story, right? Because the threat becomes, oh, the bad guys can cross over into the real world and they're gonna bring all these terrible villains. Yeah. But guess what? The world's a dystopia anyway. Who gives mm, a shit? Yeah. What I would have suggested, right, what I feel like they should have done, and they tried and this is where they were grasping for it with the casting of Mercedes Rule. Uh, as his who's mother wonderful who's in this a, movie. incredible Oscar winning like that, the scene between her and Schwarzenegger actress. is I think she's amazing. One of the better she's scenes always in the amazing. Movie. Yeah, yeah. But she was the mum in big Right. Oh, that's right. So that's I think what they were going for. Big, but here's the difference. Big 
uh, the character of Josh Bashkin when he's a, when he's a kid, yeah. his world of that suburbia in like Long Island is actually a beautiful world, right? He just doesn't realize it mm. until he's gone to Oz of of the New New York. He becomes big. Right, he becomes right, right. Tom Hanks. He goes on that Oz like adventure, realizes it's not all it's cracked up to be, and then comes home and realizes actually I have a mother who loves me. I have a best friend who loves me, mm -hmm. and I have the a beautiful youth awaiting me. You know, his life is beautiful, and that's what this should have been, in my opinion. But because the dystopia mm -hmm. is so oppressive, at the what is he returning to at the end of the movie? A horrible, horrible world. So that's sort of one component that well, I feel like was, and in fact, to your a point, misstep. Sorry, not to yeah, yeah, jump yeah. on you there. This movie, it does something with the coastal thing as well, like that where New York is this like rain-soaked, oppressive, Ridley Scott making Blade Runner-esque place, and Southern California is this like beautiful mecca of palm trees, and it's always sunny, and like with the exception of, I think, the really good scene when we see Jock Slater's apartment, and it's like on an overpass. Right, on like, yeah, yeah, like I thought that that yeah. was good. But yeah, I mean... I'm not I'm not going to refute all your points here, but I think one of the more interesting things that the movie does is when Benedict and we can maybe talk about this later. But when Benedict enters the real world, he's like, there's no consequences here. And I think that that is one so, of but what are the stakes then? Yeah, but I think that's one from a thematic perspective. That subversion is one of the more interesting things that the movie does. Now, I think we're talking about two different what? things, story versus theme and some of the thematic things in it are like the fact that he kills the garage attendant or whatever it is and like. He's like, I have just shot yeah. a man. And someone's like, shut up, I think is like one of the more, is one of the quite frankly funnier scenes in the movie. But these things are, are in, this is part of the problem. You're speaking to the exact point of it, of why this film is like both so frustrating. That scene is brilliant yeah. and really clever, but it doesn't serve the core story theme. Right. I always equate it to like spokes on a wheel, right? right. Like on a bicycle wheel. Yeah. You should have your core story and your core theme yeah. are in the middle. And all those spikes, all those individual, all the spokes yeah. are themes that are in service of that. And if they're not in service of it, even if it's a brilliant scene, yeah. then it shouldn't be in the movie or in the script. Yeah. The other part of, I think, why that, uh, even though there's individual scenes are sometimes really interesting like that one. Yeah. Um, they they aren't cohesive, right? They're not congruent to the, yeah. the, the central thrust yeah. of what the idea should be and what the, the story that you're telling. The other part of it is then that the world building is way too complex. So as I say, I feel like it should be Wizard of Oz. It should be Kansas and Oz. A boring, in quotes, suburbia that he later realizes is actually like a really nice place. Um, it, there should be a contrast, like you're saying, to the to the utopia of California in the world of Jack Slater and his quote-unquote boring, maybe Kansas-like, middle America, whatever it might be. Something yeah. that has some kind of contrast to that world. Um, Seattle, who knows, right? Um, just so, yeah, I, I don't right. mind it being gloomy. Well, to quote another 90s great film, Sleepless in Seattle, right. it rains nine months out of the year in Seattle. I don't know. It I doesn't, just, but it could still be, it could still right. be a nice place. Anyway, um, the, 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 the tears of reality are too complex that it should just be clean. It should be Kansas and Oz. But in this film, you have this diffuse, these diffuse tears of reality, right? You've got the real world, 
which is already a dystopia, so it seems heightened and, and weird. Then you've got the world of Jack Slater. That, But it, you've also got the world of movies in general, hence the appearance yeah. of T-1000 and Catherine Trammell, uh, the Sharon Stone character. And Whiskers, from, my that, favorite character in the film. Whiskers, don't get the me started. The animated cat. Uh, an animated cat for crying out voiced loud. Voiced by? Voiced by Danny DeVito, <sighs> right? You've also got... Arnold's, Arnold's good friend. And you've got the world of Hollywood and movie making. Yeah. So it goes off that world into another tier of reality, yeah. which is like studio lots. Then you've got an implied real world where Arnold Schwarzenegger exists in addition to Jack Slater. These are too many tiers, right? Mm. It's not clean. Mm. It's not It's not focused, mm -hmm. okay? So it makes everything too scattershot, too unwieldy. It's just spaghetti at the wall, mm -hmm. you know? And these are the kind of things that I feel like off the gate they should have got together and had like the story conference to be like, what fundamentally is the movie that we're making? What is the fundamental story that we're making? Now, McTiernan on his commentary, which is very self-critical, said he saw it as a Cinderella story. And he, he says, that's what we should have been chasing. I'm not sure that's quite quite okay. correct personally, but I yeah. see where he's kind of going can going I, with it. Can, but okay. th that, was my, that was my basic, like, like, at least fundamental building blocks. That's what it should have been. And if you had that, you have that playground for all of these brilliant ideas that are, that are in the movie. But because on the foundational level, it was too, it was too complicated um, and those things were not thought through, you then have the, the, the building blocks are, are um, cracked. And that's why you have a bunch of interesting scenes that don't serve a central conceit. Mm -hmm. So, I, yeah, I totally agree. I think you're absolutely right. Can I just for fun ref, can I refute every, is what you just said? Okay, so... The, the, what the, the prosecution about, rests. The, <laughs> what if we had a witness? That would be great. <laughs> Who would it be? Charles Dance. So, there's this... Have you heard of the theater director, Peter Sellers? No relation to the uh, star of the Pink Panther. Peter Sellers is a is a provocative figure in the theater world. He um, he directed a famous version of King Lear, where like King Lear rode on stage in an actual Cadillac. Cadillac. I've seen one production directed by Peter Sellers. The production of Othello starred John Ortiz, Philip Seymour Hoffman. I, I know what you're talking and about. And Jessica yeah, yeah, Chastain. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, it was four hours long. Yeah. It the set was TV screens. It was like out there and weird and like there were things about it that didn't like there were guns that they used, but the guns never went off. People just like lifted them back and pulled them back. And like there's a lot going on. There was a critique of it as being like about Obama, post Obama politics, whatever. I would never say like this was the definitive production of Othello, right? Like because I, a, I don't think that exists and B, I don't think that's what Peter Sellers strives for. And I read an interview with him that was really interesting because I think he's a genius. Like whether I agree with his, like he's a singular artistic vision. It's this great quote that I'll never forget, which is he says, a plot is a coat hanger for you to hang your ideas on. Mm. And I've always thought of that as oppositional or not oppositional, but contrary to the sort of the idea of the, the classic unity of theme and story that narrative strives for which is the idea that like and I, this this is not me disagreeing with what you're saying but like you know the idea the classical idea of like put the building blocks together and make the most coherent clean best piece of character begins their journey here goes through a bunch of things and in this case ends up or in the classic wizard of oz ends up back home a changed person understanding something new about their lives 
Peter Sellers' idea seems to be like, a plot is just there for me to put interesting things that I'm intrigued by onto. And I think McTiernan may have been striving for something else, but some of the most compelling stuff about this movie are are the elements of its disunity. So... It's a movie kind of about the coasts and how, like, New York is a hellhole and Southern California is this, like, beautiful place where no one can get hurt. But obviously, like, this movie is a a compromised, you know, sort of film about Hollywood and is a disaster, right? Like, it was a disaster from a box office perspective or whatever the case was. He literally introduces the Grim Reaper from the film The Seventh Seal. It somewhat becomes about death and, like, the looming inevitability of that it's a it's a satire. It plays at the image of Arnold Schwarzenegger. The fact that in this world, Sylvester Stallone is the star of T2, which plays with the idea of like, what if Sylvester Stallone had been the star of T2? The, I think it's funny and kind of meaningless, but also interesting that Sharon Stone shows up in this movie as Catherine Trammell from Basic Instinct, just like lighting a cigarette outside the police station. The idea being that she's just like left the police station after being interrogated. Like it's a nod to Verhoeven, the T-1000, it's a nod to James Cameron. I am very, very intrigued by meta storytelling and storytelling that points at other things or creates this like larger idea of like, where does the movie end and the real world begin? And by the way, that's a classic thematic idea in The Wizard of Oz, which I recently rewatched with my daughter and was like, holy shit, this movie is like on to things that I never would have as a kid understood that it was, which is an obsession of a filmmaker like David Lynch, who I would say often uses plot as a way to hang you know, ideas upon. So I'm really intrigued by this movie as a failure, as a failure of idea and a failure of execution in some ways. But what I will say is that it actually tells us that we were living at a really, really significant moment in action filmmaking because this was allowed to happen. Mm. Like the fact that like we're so down the rabbit hole with whatever you want to call them, diehards on or Mm. Schwarzenegger movies or whatever, like it's so in the zeitgeist that people are like, what if we were to like wink at you and just continually wink at you for two hours? And like, you know, I find it very intriguing and meaningful as a as as a quote unquote failure, as a, as a failure of like what you're describing of, of storytelling unity. And I would also say we live in a time now and this I'm not I'm not what I'm about to say is not me shitting on what's happening now or saying yay to what to positive to what's going on where it's almost impossible to separate the story of a movie's production from the movie itself. And mm-hmm. everyone obsessively obsessively looks at movies and goes like, oh, this movie failing is indicative of well, this. The, the Flash. The Flash, right, which just right came out this week. Where, right? where, like, the, where the off-screen story is almost overwhelming uh, the, the, the actual... The story of the movie. Yeah, and, the story but of the movie. more than yeah. that, the fact that that movie, and I haven't seen it yet, and spoilers for The Flash, because I, but I but I read a lot over the weekend because I'm intrigued by this. And, and that, by the way, is another point that I'd like it's to reference. It's also a meta film, right? Meta film. Yeah. But... Michael Keaton is in this film as Batman. Is in the film as. Sorry, spoiler. He only shows up for two seconds at the end. Ben Affleck is in the film. Like, we are living in an age where we're constantly thinking both about a movie's story and a movie's larger circumstances and what it means and how it's how we're obsessed yeah. with these kinds of things. And it's like we're living in a world that Danny Madigan 
would have, when he moved to mm-hmm. Hollywood as an older person, would have been a part of because we're approximately his age and we both now right. work in Hollywood and talk about movies obsessively and reference them. I mean, the fact that we make the joke when we say tenant, we live in a twilight world, like we're living in a Hollywood that I think is a shadow of what Last Action Hero kind of started to do, which is to, to, to create this dialogue between what's on screen and what's off screen in a way that is like very, very compelling. And that's to put us, and that, by the way, informs what I think is the most interesting idea in the movie, which is the real world is worse than the film world. And there's this insistence in our culture that everyone wants to live inside pop culture now because mm. not to get too you know, real world about these things. There's a lot of things wrong with the world right now, and pop culture is an escape. Again, Ready Player One, right? Written by Zach Penn. Right, and so this, the idea of a movie about a kid whose life is so shitty that he wants to escape to the cinema and experience a father figure, and I'm not saying the movie delivers on that, is pretty profound because I think we're kind of living in the shadows of what Last Action Hero did or did not accomplish. And and I will always say that a movie that feels as though it's resonant 30 years later, irregardless of how successful we think it is from a storytelling perspective, is important to the culture. And I think this movie is ultimately quite important to action movie history. You know what? That deserves a round of applause. Like, oh, honestly, you. that's a great, great counterpoint. And I definitely would have the, you know, I hope I have the humility to say you've made a fantastic counter argument there. Thank you. Um, I, that, that's actually given me real food, food for thought. My, my my comeback would just briefly be like I, I think you make the point. I'm not going to try and like defeat yeah. defeat your argument because you made a fantastic case. And I think it's totally totally valid. This was a uh, there's an absolutely a place for films within the mainstream to be experimental, right. to be disruptive, to be forward looking. This was clearly an influential film. I mean, Scream came out like what three years later. That was mm-hmm. also a sort of meta deconstruction satire of the horror genre, that but also worked point. effectively both su- as a horror film in its own right, and as well films- as having meta elements. Sorry to interrupt. Both films that have scenes explicitly set in video stores, Mm -hmm. which I think is really, Mm -hmm. really important. You know, I haven't watched it yet intentionally because I didn't want my perspective to be informed by it. But there's a great film critic and writer named Scout Tafoya. And he makes this series for RogerEbert.com. Their video essays called The Unloved. And one of my favorites is his one on Michael Mann's public enemies, which I think is a I kind of a masterpiece. Film. I agree. And, and, a, and a, I would not say a meta commentary, but a commentary on the 20th century, a profound commentary on media in the 20th century. And he made a an essay, a film essay about Last Action Hero that I, I was I opened up to watch after the film. I said, you know what? I, I, I don't want to subsume Scout's ideas into my own, so I'm going to yes, wait yeah, yeah. until after, you know, to watch this. But uh, he is... Really interesting, interesting critic. Everyone should check out. He writes about film in in this absolutely unbelievable way, and I'm very excited to check that out. And I'll probably share it on our Twitter feed after. Well, the only other thing I wanted to say about just your point and your analogy about Peter Sellers and theater, though, is is that I think theater is an open forum and an open box mm-hmm. for experimental ideas, especially if you're doing a play that's been performed for the last 400, 500 years. You absolutely have to invest it with right. fresh life, fresh ideas, uh, pushing the envelope. Um, I think it's difficult to... Uh, an action movie, and there's also a debate about whether this is an action movie or a comedy or neither or both or, or whatnot, but this still has to work functionally. There is a science to 
film feature film mainstream feature films that need to function on a certain level at their core and then you can play jazz around that spine right right but if it doesn't work in on that on those fundamental levels then I, I just think you know you, you end up with what this is which is just a, a bit of a mess but I do totally agree that like sometimes the corners and edges and and the weirdness yeah. are the most interesting part and that's definitely true the in this shadow, movie the shadow of what the, the weird experimental mm. tangents especially yeah. like the Hamlet sequence at the beginning oh is brilliant it's amazing you know and some of these other ideas like you're saying with the Charles dance like I'm just going to shoot someone and ask for consequences and they're not provided by this society these are all really really interesting ideas they just don't they don't uh, they don't they don't sort of um, congeal into one they don't coalesce they don't coalesce that was the yeah. word I was and bl I blundering and for I think of the simple terms is that and I have no stake in this movie's success or failure is that I applaud things that reach so far that they don't coalesce but I understand your point about what I would describe as like the need for the internal engine of something to work to carry you through because at the end of yes. the day all of my lofty ideas aside I go to the movies and I pay $14 or when this came out it was probably eight bucks to see a movie and like you want to have a satisfying experience. And I think that the internal, the eternal balance of an of an artist, especially one operating on mainstream high budget level, is to give audience like, this is what is so, by the way, amazing about The Wizard of Oz, is that I showed The Wizard of Oz to my five-year-old. And she like, she was just staring at it, like jaw on the floor. Um, we haven't rewatched it since. And I think the reason is because it has this very fairy tale narrative. But it's and it's working on that way where we're sort of spending time with these characters that we like and they're all learning like to get a heart or to the bravery or whatever the case is. But there's something in the shadow that filmmakers like David Lynch, by the way, have devoted their entire careers to, which is like, what is the shadow? That movie operates on some conscious. Some, yeah, so that's what great art should, should yeah. do to some extent is, yeah. uh, is function on both the conscious and subconscious level right. or on the collective unconscious level. Well said. Collective right? unconscious is you know, really important. Uh, uh, um, and which maybe brings us to a little bit of, of some, you know, the issue of like the Ripper in this movie. I mean, we'll get to it when we get to the villain section. But to me, that's another part of it where it's like this character is almost too terrifying for a, for a quote unquote, for a film aimed at kids or or is it aimed at kids? It's R rates. It's R rates. Or is it? Right. Oh, no, it's PG thirteen, right? Because he can't say uh, the f word uh, at one point. But again, it's the other thing I think is tricky with this film is the detective plot is very very complicated. You know, if that if the tears of reality had been simplified and cleaned up, you could have had maybe a, a detective, uh, complicated detective plot for for the characters to solve. But because that's complicated, it makes the whole thing a bit impenetrable, you know, and, and therefore you risk being confused and ultimately bored. I agree. You know? So we've talked about the premise. We've talked about the ticking clock. Let's take a quick break, and then we're going to talk about all the other categories. Let's talk about the hero. Hamlet. Yes. yes. No, there's two heroes in this movie. They right. are Jack Slater and, well, I guess there's a hero. A, there's, a, there's a hero and the, and the, uh, the protagonist, I would right. say, right? Protagonist? Um, we live in a twilight world. <laughs> there are no friends at dusk. <laughs> um, I ordered Danny, my hot sauce an hour ago. Dan, Danny is the protagonist. Jack Slater is the hero. And he's really a sort of composite of action hero archetypes, right? right? I would say the rule-breaking renegade cop. Uh, he goes back to um, who, uh, Dirty Harry, Riggs, McLean, of course. I do love his look 
in yeah. this oh, movie. God, those boots. The boots, the T-shirt, the leather jacket, the car. They put a lot of thought into that stuff. It's iconic. Yeah. You know, and it's played by an iconic star. You know, that that it, it that's cool. I, I like the Jack Slater character. He's also, we'll get to this, but I think this is a... A shining example of Arnold Schwarzenegger's ability to be funny, this movie. I think it has... Was... But I do have a question for you. Okay. All right, a bit of a disrupt... In the spirit of being disruptive... Yeah. Could anyone else have played Jack Slater and would it have been a more cohesive movie? And I have one idea to throw at you. What Is it Mel it... Gibson? No. Oh. What if it was Kurt Russell? <gasps> that would be very good. Uh, now... Kurt Russell, not now. Kurt Russell's pretty funny, and it would also very, very openly reference the sort of work he did with Carpenter. Big Trouble, right? Big tr think, <sighs> think. Are you a Big Trouble fan? Oh yeah, I love that. Of big Trouble in Little China is yeah. the film we're talking yeah. about. Think of like in that film where he plays a character funnily enough called Jack Burton. He does a similar sort of. That's also a slightly messy film, but it's much more. Uh, it's much more effective. It definitely takes weird tangents, but that's also part of the fun of that film. But the thrust of it is is pretty. Um, is pretty clear, but he he kind of satirizes and deconstructs the idea of the macho action hero in that film. Yeah, and Kurt Russell um, by his by his sort of personality did that as well. It's a very fascinating. And actor. I could just see him doing the father son stuff. He can do everything. He can be the romantic lead. He right. can be the um, the tender father. He can be the action star with the flowing mullet. He can have those cowboy boots and a cool look, and also make fun of himself. Now, it's to say that Arnold, to your point, is also actually does have quite a deft touch for comedy and he'd already proven that with two consecutive hits uh twins and kindergarten cop uh in that space which yeah. proved that he did have a gift for comedy he's but so good in my kindergarten other question cop. on that point mm. is would this have been a better film if it had been directed by ivan reitman and not a uh. hardcore action director if the emphasis was on the comedy, the world building, you know, this is the guy that did Ghostbusters, right? right. That works on the level of a kind of kind of a scary horror film yeah. and a comedy. Well, and also and kind both... of an action movie. There's a little bit exactly. of that in there, too. And it still feels cohesive. Right. Whereas McTiernan had no gift for comedy necessarily and quite or overt comedy. There's funny stuff in... He cast um, good actors to say funny in things. In Die Hard. Yeah, yeah he in, had Bruce yeah. Willis, right? Yeah. And he had Rickman, who's very witty, right? right. Well, and even um, Baldwin has his moments in The Hunt for an October. That but, are funny. But comedy isn't right. really his forte. And right. Reitman had a real gift for blending genres. That's well um, said. You know, so I just wonder, like, that would be the producing component of this was actually, as much as we love McTiernan, was he the right guy for this? Anyway, we're talking about the, the, the hero. Well, I guess um, my question would be, do you think Danny Madig uh, Austin O'Brien as Danny Madigan works? I think he's okay. Yeah. I think he's likable and charming enough. I wish... It, it, I wondered what it would have been like if it was a Sean Astin or a Macaulay Culkin or an Anthony Michael Hall. Yeah. Someone that, again, was a, maybe a little bit... Um, I think an unknown is really good for this movie. Not that he was completely unknown, but he was unknown-ish. I, I think, think he's it, fine. Yeah. But, I, you he know... He got a bad rap. People gave, like, like as people often do with kids in movies, like, people were like, he's awful. He's certainly not awful No, he's by not awful. And, and McTiernan on the commentary still says he thinks it was one of the things he got absolutely right. Shane Black disagrees. He said... he. He thinks it was like a huge mistake, the casting mm. of the kid. Um, and Shane Black also had a real aptitude. Almost all of his films feature sassy kids, right? Last Boy yeah. Scout. Though the little girl in um, Last Boy Scout is so funny. Iron Man annoying. 3. Iron Man 3, pre right. the, the Predator. Um, right. you know, they all, well, the Predator's not a kid. <laughs> no, not, not the character of the Predator, but the film, the Predator. Anyway, um, I think, look, those... Jack Slater and Danny Madigan, fine. I don't have, uh, right. I don't think there's any fundamental issues with either the characters or the actors necessarily. Right. 
Um, I also think moving on to the villain, the villain is fantastic. Benedict. Benedict, not, played by not, Charles Dance. Not Anthony Quinn as Tony Vivaldi. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a said, really, yeah, yeah, just kind of a waste of a waste of a great actor. Yes, yeah, yeah. And Tom Noonan is the Ripper. Look, I love Tom Noonan. He's much more memorable as Tom Noonan than he is as the Ripper, and just a gross character. But Benedict, Benedict's the best great. thing in Charles the movie. Charles Dance is great. He He's is very good, superb. Gruber-esque character, yeah. right? Uh, the British, eye thing is very trained mm -hmm. RSC member, just like Alan Rickman. Um, and he would go on to have an incredible TV and movie career after this. I mean, he's phenomenal. And also similar to um, James B. Sicking's bearded character in Narrow Margin that we right. talked about in a previous uh, previous episode. The scene, the Toto scene that you referenced at the front door is one of the better moments between them. I, I wish that there was, you know, it's a little bit of the the, the Hydra-ish problem of this movie that yeah. there's too many too characters, many too many villains, well, too many characters. I would have collapsed them, actually. I would have collapsed Benedict and the Ripper into one character so that Jack Slater has only one motivation instead of two, which is right. like revenge. Now, it, it's one, it's revenge, and two, it's get the magic ticket back. Why not collapse those characters and just simplify the playing field? You know, right, um, and then because you've also got Anthony Quinn as Vivaldi, who's just like, you know, why are you here? Yeah, well, I well, that's one of the best, also, one of the things that works really well in the movie is, is Benedict's open contempt for his boss, you moron. Like, it's the Shane good. Black influence again, isn't it? Where the henchman is more interesting than the actual, right? Like Milo in um, Boss, Last Boy Scout, though. I still maintain that the Sheldon, what's his name, is, is the worst. Yeah, <laughs> it's the worst. Let's um, talk about the action, yeah. Um, a handful of good action sequences. Sure. I think the I think the exploding house with the cards counting down, that's cool. That is cool. The subsequent car chase is is one of the best parts of the movie. I, that guy. Tacona phrase. <laughs> you know I love a bad pun. Well see, this is but he's so I mean, we'll get he's so funny. Like he knows exactly what he's doing and like very few actors could pull that. Imagine Sylvester Stallone trying to say ice that guy. I just can't no. I can't see it yeah. working. And yeah, Stallone, you know, did his own meta stuff which kicked the, all this off in Tango and Cash. Right. He references Rambo and says Rambo is a pussy. Right. Um, and was poking fun at his own image and as a sort of stockbroker cop. That kind of stuff comes back now with uh, the open references to The Rock in, in Michael Bay's right. Ambulance, yeah. which I just yeah, think yeah. is so, really so weird. interesting. Yeah, but it works. It works. I don't know what it is. Um, there's the the helicopter attack on the skyscraper is good. There's one phenomenal shot where the helicopter is like pulling away as it's like shooting the, the shooting the glass. Yeah, uh, that of is the, a good shot of the building. There's one amazing shot. But I like the the funeral sequence despite its absurdity. Well, apparently Shane Black said something like that. The, it was an. It, it it reminds me of the sequence with the coffin in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. I think Shane Black and and uh, David Arnold I believe came up with that sequence but he said but McTiernan never shot where the dynamite was so there's no sense of what's actually at stake yeah that's in, what's, uh, yeah in the scene that's why it's feel like the whole film just feels like this is a good moment to pause and, and met reference briefly Nick Dissemlian's oral history of this movie which you can find online and Nick also wrote this book Last Action Heroes that's that's really worth reading they had three and a half weeks from finishing filming to the movie coming out it was yeah, like a crazy a runaway train. Runaway Not train. the best. So according to and I think this creativity. might yeah, and I think this might be a little exaggerated. But McTiernan claims that like the action sequences of this movie are like the camera reel essentially taken out and like put into the film. So there's not that much editing, you know, the the kind of continuity or the kind of the the coverage shooting that they would have done to 
put it together. Now, I don't believe that because it would literally be impossible, but it sounds like they had to really slapdash this thing together. And yeah. and I think we can agree that it's reflected in it some feels of the, like the design of the it, movie. It feels, yeah, you're trying to do, um, you know, uh, brain surgery whilst you're riding on top of a freight and, train. And, you know, you have to wonder if this kind of slapdash, you know, ultimate failure of this movie is why so many tentpole movies now are like, made with a release date in mind years in advance for shareholder reasons or whatever the case might be, but there's like less, you you couldn't get away making this movie the way that they made it. You know, movie the movie that we're going to talk about the next, the next, The Fugitive, had almost the same timeline. It was like nine months from... Uh, from like script commissioning to the movie coming and yet out, yeah, they a, nailed it. It's a but it's a less complex. It's a less complex. Right. Well, there's piece. no, there's no meta. There's nothing meta yeah. about it. It's, it's just it's, a straight ahead cat and mouse thriller that's absolutely incredible. Yeah, the Should action's we, fine. The action is okay, but it's not that memorable, which right. is a shame. And again, that's why I wonder, like, if you're not going to really, if you've got McTiernan, then the action isn't. The focus. That's what. Why not get Ivan Reitman right. or you know, the, or, or Zemeckis or. I think Zemeckis. You know. I think Ivan Reitman could have. Yeah, that's a really interesting Zemeckis. Maybe a little too childlike. I think Ivan Reitman can handle some of the darkness in this movie in a different way. I wouldn't way. say Zemeckis is childlike. Look that's at true. like Contact or Flight. Oh yeah, or you What know, Lies Beneath. Some serious adult he made dramas. Flight. Yeah, he's a good know, director. I'm a hell of a not, director. I'm just thinking. I think I'm thinking of his like more 80s. 90s he definitely kind of had work. like the early stuff had that whimsical quality. Right. But you know, again, with like Back to the Future. Future is a great job of taking different genres, a sort of teen movie and a time travel. We well, forget movie. about the Libyan terrorists at the beginning of right. Back to the Future. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. So I, I wonder if it was just McTiernan was not the, even though it's like it seems like a no brainer on face value. Maybe he just wasn't the right director. Well, he's for a variety of reasons. He's a dark dude, right? There's a darkness there, and his movies. He's a great filmmaker, but like maybe it, it leans a little too hard into the hard R. Is this movie R or PG thirteen? I think it's PG thirteen. That's why. That this movie would be PG thirteen, yeah. especially you know, not to be like ooh about it, but it's you know, it's like yikes, it's not. But that's again the problem is who is this movie for? There's jokes about premature ejaculation, and a cartoon cat that fondles women and sexually assaults them. Oh yeah, who the fuck is this movie? Yeah, that for? they should have cut that. That's bad. That's like, bad. It, not to be all like purse, but that's bad. It's really bad. It's, it's really, really bad. bad. So the, but humor. the humor. So that brings Len, us yeah. to the humor. Um, and usually we skip over this section, but the humor is one of the best parts of this movie. That uh, you know, there's some really egregious, horrible stuff, but there's also some truly inspired stuff. Right. Uh, like the Hamlet. Stuff, right. Which I feel is really your wheelhouse. Well, I just would say I, I love the I, I love going. Hey, Claudius, you killed my father. Big mistake. Like the fact, like something is rotten in the state of Denmark. I love that like, whole sequence. It's I very, it's, it's very funny. It's very smart. It's very smart in like a dumb way. Like I love jokes that are the smartest and dumbest jokes at the exact same time. And the fact that like, yeah, I just, I just find it great. And I also think that like again, it speaks to this thing that I think is really interesting, which is like. There's that. I love that his English teacher is like a classically trained British actress. Like it's just she's so, married to Laurence Olivier. Right. It's just it's like smart like Joan that. Plowright. Joan Plowright. Joan Plowright. And like the idea that like when I was a kid, I like Shakespeare. Like I'm not trying to, but like I didn't need the help to get into Shakespeare as a kid. I'm not saying I understood everything, but I kind of got the drama of like you know the Scottish tragedy or like reading. Um, you know, I was in Twelfth Night at high, in high school. Like, I love Shakespeare. But, like, as an entry point, the idea of, like, a, a, a blood-soaked revenge thriller, like, 
starring Arnold Schwarzenegger playing a version of Hamlet is not all that far removed also from the fact that Mel Gibson played Hamlet five years, three years yeah. before this movie came out. Like, McTiernan, again... The worlds were colliding, right, right you action know, movies and, and high art um, Die Hard being, yeah. a, being McTiernan's uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, as he described it, and then bringing it back for this movie. Like, it's a dumb and smart joke at the same time. And I think also the idea of a school-age kid, like, I would have been this way, imagining Arnold Schwarzenegger as Hamlet is like a pretty smart way to teach Hamlet potentially, Absolutely. right? Like there's some real, there's some really fun ideas at, in, in this. And it's just also funny that he throws Claudius out the window. Like that, that's cool and hilarious. I love that. Like, but, and that, also the fact that you bring up the good point of like, there's a certain amount of just there's fun and silly and it, it works when the movie like kind of is harmless and doesn't work as well when it's sort of rubbing your face and just the darkness of, of, well, that you know. speaks to the tone, the wild tonal inconsistency. That's also one of the big, big problems, right? right? Like it's, it's just all over the place tonally. It's not consistent. I, I do love the idea. I thought it was really interesting. It was sort of just thrown away in, 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 uh, in that scene. But the idea that they say that Hamlet was the first action hero. And I found that really interesting. But yeah. then she sort of prefaces by saying, well, but you might think that his whole issue is that he's totally inactive. And they kind of touch on that later because it gets into like Slater's ennui and his existential angst. And he's like tortured when we realize that he lives in the shit There's apartment. There's always a guy in the closet. And, yeah, you know, that's, what, that's a great joke that when he just kills the guy yeah, who's in I the closet. It, yeah. And if it had leaned into that that's more... The thing, it's like, that's yeah. what drives me crazy because there's genius in this movie around the core. Right. But the core is fucked. The you core know. is fucked. <laughs> you heard it here first. You heard it here first. Um, um, the leading lady, Bridget Wilson, mainstay of the 90s action movie genre, Mortal Kombat. Oh, is she in that? Yeah. she's. I believe she's Sonya Blade. I'm, I, you know, the movie doesn't do that much with her. It's intended to be a pubescent boy's fantasy right, figure, exactly. right? That's, that's the whole point of this character. I find it a little grating, you yeah, know, the screaming thing. Like, I get, it's a clever joke, the idea where she's pretending to scream when yeah. she, she's actually beating the guy up. Well, it, it also speaks to McTiernan's faculty with, like, making the women characters a little more interesting than often they get. But, but they don't an do anything with her. It's kind of stereotype, and she just disappears from, yeah. from the movie. And what is with this skeezy thing. The, the less said about what skeezy, the better. What is going on? Now, I am writing a series called Skeezy, which is the a... skeezy spinoff? <laughs> I'm writing a skeezy spinoff, yeah. It's, it's called The skeez. internet is clamoring for yeah, this. Yeah, everyone's been talking about it. Yeah, there's just a... This is really bizarre. I don't... I can't even get into it with the skeezy. If you see... It's listen, so if you're this stupid. far into the episode and you don't know who skeezy is, like... <laughs> get on it. You get your life it's together. It's the yoga of our times yeah, the... <laughs> from Toy Soldiers. <laughs> yeah, it's very good. Um, let's get right, on... Let's, let's put on the tuxes. Let's do it. Yeah, let's, let's do it. Let's get let's ready for the it. premiere. Yeah. I love that Schwarzenegger meets Jack Slater. In, in this movie, I think that that, that part. Well, there fun. was one. It does echo Purple Rose of Purple Rose of Cairo in that regard. When we 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 never really got into it, but um, it, I don't think you can have a serious deep conversation about Last Action Hero without referencing Woody Allen's Purple Rose of Cairo, which features a character. Uh, Jeff Daniels plays a movie character who steps out of the screen uh, to Mia Farrow, who is a sort of unhappy housewife living in the Great Depression. And then she gets in a love triangle with him, and uh, and and the actor playing him, which is, nope. uh, it's, but it's it works because it's it's clean, it's light, um, but it's also it has some sharp sat satirical elements. It's a good it's movie. It's a pretty focused movie, and like you know, like it's a Woody Allen film, so it's witty and sophisticated and deeply problematic. It's now. also deeply problematic. It's also probably worth bringing up that, again, 
that the the one of the not the villains in this film, but Ian McKellen, who I did I didn't know as a kid who Ian McKellen was, another Shakespearean, great yes. Shakespearean actor, Heavyweight. shows up as death from the seventh seal at the end of this movie in something that is both inspired and completely out of left field. Deus Ex Machina kind of like large. nonsense. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Just random. But what I like That's... about it is that one of the great, I wouldn't say meta, but postmodern directors is Ingmar Bergman. Ingmar Bergman, who made one of my favorite films, Persona, which opens with a very avant-garde montage that concludes with a boy touching a screen, um, which I think has some resonance with this film. Like, it's just... It is one of the things that 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 sets this movie apart is that it's you don't see a lot of action movies with references to the you know to Ingmar Bergman who's a pivotal figure again, in, again, in the world in the world yeah, cinema. Great, but like, what kid is going to get this? Yeah, well, you know what I yeah, mean. Yeah, that's fair. But like, but again, that makes it. interesting. I'd rather go see Jurassic Park, Dad. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Right. <laughs> so t- <laughs> I I didn't get it then. I get it now. You know. Yeah, Maybe but, five years later, I would have gotten it. It's just yeah. But this is a film at war with itself. Right. You know. And that um, makes that's interesting, but it's not does yeah. not necessarily make for. A, all right, let's wrap it up. Everybody's all right, we're tired. in the limo. We're let's, we're over here now. Let's, let's get let's, back let's, to skeezy. <laughs> so, the John McClane Yippie Kaye Award for best line, and the nominees are. And please feel free to add. Please. To be or not to be, <laughs> not to be. Cue the explosion. Love that. I loved Benedict saying, "If God was a villain, he'd, he'd be, be me." me. Um, and uh, no sequel for you. I loved as well. That's that was good. a pretty good kiss off line. But again, I, I kind of struggled to pull that many. Okay, uh, I, I have to add and maybe add. vote for ice that guy to cone a phrase because it's just it's Schwarzenegger like at the peak of his ability to deliver like the dumbest one-liner you've ever heard. Um, and also just the fact that it's a movie within a movie just like adds this layer of like self-awareness that, that Arnold had. But to be or not to be, not to be is the winner. Or you killed my father. Big, Big mistake. mistake. It's yeah, that was There's great. something rotten in the state of Denmark, and Hamlet is taking out the trash. Yeah, so to be or not to be. To be or not to be, not to be. Yeah. I agree. Okay. The Hans Gruber Exceptional Thief Award for stealing the film. Skeezy. <laughs> Our nominees are Charles Dance mm. as Benedict. Robert Prosky as Nick, the kindly protectionist, who was originally supposed to be the devil in disguise in a previous draft. Uh, Mercedes Rule as uh, Irene, Danny's mum, and Tom Noonan as the Ripper. And as Tom Noonan. Um, I would go with Mercedes Rule. And as Tom Noonan. I would go with Mercedes Rule. She's barely in the film. But I love the scene where she meets, again, a little commentary, where she she and Schwarzenegger, Jack Slater, stay up all night talking. He's like, I've never talked to a woman like this before. Like, it's just, and for a minute I was like, did they sleep together? Like, there's just, there's a little bit of cleverness and fun in that scene. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's a little, like, reactionary but funny, like, you made him lame. Like, I just think that that, that there's, there's heart and soul in that scene that might be missing she's from just others. class she's Who, just yeah. class in everything yeah, and she's like she's yeah i mean you believe her as the the harried single mom and i i think she also is the one thing that clues us into danny's sort of uh the tr- the sadness of his life which is like i didn't plan on being a widower at 40 or whatever the line is um she's wonderful yeah. Who's your pick? I, I have to go with Charles Dance. Sure. To me, he's just the most... I mean, she's great, and all these actors are great, but he's the most entertaining, effervescent, fun 
vivid, uh, interesting character in the whole movie. He's I a think great he's, actor. I think he's fantastic. Um, the Dick Thornburg Award for Dick of the movie. Oh, this would be like half this fucking yeah, movie. Half is the Dick. cast. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and our nominees are John Practice, played by F. Murray Abraham. Mozart. Vivaldi, played by Anthony Quinn. And Whiskers, voiced by Danny DeVito. It's got to be Whiskers. 100%. Whiskers sucks. Whiskers defines the movie's problem. Yeah. Right? It's a cartoon cat, a gimmick aimed at kids. <laughs> Makes me think of Cool World. Remember the movie Cool, cool World? World? Yeah, yeah. But also, I think really more they're going for like Roger Rabbit, but like McLean oh, yeah. and Riggs. I love Roger Rabbit. Yeah. Who. Jack Slater is kind of modeled on though. They don't they didn't have Roger Rabbit as a sidekick. Yeah. It's like too many tones and styles and genres. Like and it, it, you know, so it's a gimmick aimed at kids, but the character's behavior is repellent. Yeah, he sucks. You know, an adult and yeah. you know, it's just like what the who the fuck signed off on that? Yeah, it's weird. It's weird. <laughs> it's terrible. Um best death, I really only had two Which nominees. Are... Um uh, do you want to do the the, the our sponsor oh, for the award? Please take it, take it back. It's we gonna... the best death award presented by Marco. Well, oh my God, I forgot the line. <laughs> no more table. Next time you have a chance to kill someone, don't. <laughs> I think you got a little bit gun shy because you got uh, uh, you feel self conscious doing it in front of the guests, and we've yeah. had guests the last couple that's of times. True, that's so. true. That's true. That's true. Let's get you back on best track. Best death. With that. I've only got two. I've got the Ripper being electrocuted mm. and Benedict being shot in the eye. They're the only Al Leon getting killed by the ice cream cone is pretty good. Just because of ice, that guy. Um, yeah, I don't know. They're not that memorable. I do love... Uh, okay, I do have one because I love it in the context of action movies, which is the cop that blows up and then goes, two days to retire. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because that is like, I think, a de lethal weapon reference. Like, So I, I'm going to go with the cop who blo who dies in the explosion who says two days to retirement because that's action movie commentary. A right thought there. that's just occurred to me, though, in the interest of the kind of witty wordplay that this film loves to indulge in is, should the best death why are you be... So, why are you so mad, bro? <laughs> but should the best death be death, played by... Oh, yeah, the best, by you know, yeah, yeah, no, we're going to take it back. The best death win. is death. He has to win. He has to win. That very meta joke. You know what really fucked me up as a kid is when he says to Danny Madigan, you die a grandfather. Because it's like it opened. Remember? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's supposed to be like comforting, but it's like, don't put that shit on me. Yeah, it's like an existentially dread. Yeah, exactly. Like, why are we? You know what? Like existential dread in a light summer action movie. I love a bit of existential dread if I'm going to see a Peter Sellers play. Right, 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 right. right? right. Like, I don't want it in Last Action Hero, bro. Sure, 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 so... sure. That's why you mad, bro. All right, let's do <laughs> the right, quiz. Bro. Double let's... Jeopardy, where the scores can really change. All right. So you have three questions. You can phone a friend. You can call Al Powell, and I'll provide I'm you with call one death. clue. All right. Yeah, let's get a bit ex existentially weird during I don't this need trivia to. quiz. <laughs> I've had three espresso shots. Okay. I don't need it. All right. Okay. Question number one. The police station in the world of Jack Slater was filmed at the, the Columbia Lots corporate headquarters, which is essentially Sony's equivalent of Fox Plaza. Which other Arnold movie filmed multiple scenes inside this distinctive pyramid-shaped building? At before this or after this? Uh, it was before. Is it Terminator? No. Do you want to call Al? He's I'll standing call Al. by. 
Okay. Is this my what, only call, Al? Okay. No, you can call him on oh, every oh, question. Right. You get How one on each question. The clue is the location doubled for the lobby of a futuristic television studio. Oh, is it Running Man? Yeah. Oh, nice. Thanks, If you Al. notice the early scenes when Richard Dawson arrives, you clearly see it's the same building. Interesting. So it's it's the equivalent of when Die Hard shot on the Fox Plaza, which is where the corporate offices of Fox. This is Sony's equivalent on their lot. This is going to be incredibly, like, ugh, annoying guys that live in L.A., but... Have you noticed? That's our other podcast. Yeah, like, let's. Yeah. If you want to subscribe yeah. to annoying guys that live in LA, yeah. it's only <laughs> no, that's Patreon, this, it's, actually. It's, yeah, exactly. Well, I was going to yeah, say, yeah. do you find that like so? I was watching. Um, uh, I was watching uh, Perry Mason rip yeah. the great series on HBO uh, that recently got canceled, and um, we were watching it. My wife and I. I'm like, I'm uh, as you know, a sucker for LA noir. So like, this is. And we're watching it, and like my wife looks up at this because she's watching it too, and she goes, "That's the lot. That's because she used to work at Warner Brothers." She's like, "That's that alley that you turn into." And I, and then like, similarly watching like I watched Zack Snyder's Justice League, and she's like, "That's the same spot that was in." And I, I'm increasingly like, I don't want to know. Yeah, it kind of ruins it, it, it ruins uh, it a little bit. Like when you recognize yeah. like the location yeah. of a of a of a place in L and either in the city or on a lot that you've been to and I haven't been on a lot of lots but like Hail Caesar all of that was shot really on the Warner Brothers lot and I love that movie but now I watch it and I'm like oh that's the like the steps of the Warner anyway yeah. this has been annoying guys that live in LA the podcast a movie failed movie. podcast it's going to last one failed mini because episode. we already canceled it <laughs> all right question number 2 Having discovered that he'd won this part after it was turned down by another famous British actor because of the salary, Charles Dance wore a T-shirt on the set that said, I'm cheaper than blank. Which Shakespearean actor was he referring to? Ben Kingsley. Is incorrect. <sighs> um, give me, Al. How you doing, cowboy? <laughs> All right, the clue is... Don't overthink it. Oh, Anthony Hopkins. Come on! This, what's this podcast about? Oh, was it Alan Rickman? Yes. Oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Alan Rickman was offered the role of Benedict that would, originally. Uh, God bless him. Well, A, you know, good for him for wanting more money, but that would have been a mistake, colossal mistake. You think so? Yeah, because he- Too close? It's too close, and I think people would too have Too on like, the nose. Yeah, I mean, not that he wouldn't be remembered for Gruber. It'd be too on the- Yeah, it would be too on the nose, and like, maybe it would add like a little bit of cleverness, but no, it's better in the hands of I an agree. actor who's a little less Even known. though, yeah, because it would just feel like- I'm sure that's why he didn't do it, because it's like, this is kind of a retread of the same yeah. character. And I love Charles Dance, what he does with this, yeah. with this part. Um, so, yeah, Alan Rittman was offered the role. All right, time for our final uh, round, the increasingly unpopular convoluted corner. Corner, corner, corner. Okay, question number three. Two of the actors in this film have won major awards for playing the role of Salieri in productions of Mozart. Ooh, Amadeus. One actor won an Oscar for the screen version, and one actor won a Tony for the stage version. Can you name both actors? So they're both in the movie. Both in the movie. So obviously F. Murray Abraham won an Oscar for Salieri. Correct. And then another actor, was it, okay, so I have two, can I do two guesses? Sure. Well, I'm going to start with my out, like my left field one, Robert Prosky. I like where your head's at. Because he was a uh, stage, stage actor. And, of, by the uh, way, Robert Prosky is a phenomenal yeah, he's actor. He's a great actor. Thief? Holy, Holy shit. shit. <laughs> um, is it Charles Dance? 
It is not. What? Do you want the clue? The clue's Al. really good. Please ask me for the clue. Hey, Al. <laughs> okay. You shall not pass on this question. You say these things like I should know and I should You know. shall not pass oh, Ian McKellen. on this question. Ian McKellen played Salieri. Yeah. Boy, Ian McKellen, what a and career. And won the Tony. Uh, I, it's, it's great. I love it. I think it's... Um, it's Milos Forman's very important to me as a filmmaker. Uh, his early Czech films are like... Absolutely incredible. Talk about, not meta, but basically feels like movies just about the, like, almost documentaries that are fiction films. Just incredible stuff. Uh, for those who are still listening, Loves of a Blonde and The Fireman's Ball, two of the greatest neorealist films ever made. Check New Wave. Check it out. Check it out. Rating the movie. Wow. We really went there. You know, a podcast is just a place for me to hang my ideas upon, Phil. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> no, a podcast needs to be ruthlessly structured <laughs> and absolutely unyielding Ladies and in gentlemen, its execution. The dialectic. <laughs> um, I... I don't disagree with almost anything you've said, and yet I still have a fondness for this movie because I think it is was prophetic and meaningful. Yeah, look, honestly, you've made me like you've given me real like uh, food for thought in what you've said. I think you've made a fantastic case for like not sometimes the imperfections in art are the most interesting pieces. Yes. I think that's very much true in, in this case. There was there was another little point that I, that I wanted to make that I forgot to bring up just as a final point, which is I think the finale of this movie is eerily similar to an excellent um, Hollywood satire that nailed action comedy called The Hard Way. <gasps> I um, love The Hard Way. If you I think love of, you remember the hard how at the end there's the character called the Party Crasher, yes. played by Stephen Lang of Avatar. Fame. I love that movie, dude. It's great, and there's a whole. It's almost the same. There's a giant like um, like uh, statue of the character yeah. from the movie, and there's like they're hanging off it, and it's yeah. at the premiere, and it's kind of meta. Oh man, I love that movie. If you, so the last thing I was going to say was, if you want to watch a great action comedy that nails both the action and the comedy and is a sort of uh, quasi-meta Hollywood satire, watch The Hard Way, starring Michael J. Fox and James Woods, directed by John Badham. It was made two years earlier, and I think it's that a, a much better executed version. I think the movie's kind of disappeared for reasons. It's hard to get hold it's hard of. To get, I watched it about two years ago. James Woods is a controversial yeah, figure yeah. in our contemporary moment for... But Michael J. Fox is perennially loved. Yeah, but this this might be and his he's amazing kind of like, in the movie. It might be kind of his like his last action hero because it was kind of a bomb, wasn't it? Didn't it come out? Um, I'm not sure how well it did, but it's so LL Cool J is in it, yeah. and it's don't call it a comeback. It's got that, yeah, it's yeah, got that yeah, song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a that good was movie. my walk up music when I was in my uh, inauspicious kickball Actually, career. Actually, weirdly, whenever Phil walks into a room, he plays that from his phone. <laughs> it's like a lot to take, especially when you're recording a podcast. Like, okay, Phil, we get it, we get it. Um, that's it. But that's that's all the yeah, that's all I've got to say. That's all. That's all. That's all. Listen. I enjoyed this conversation. I thought it was great. If you like this conversation, you should tell your friends or tell us what you thought. Send us an email, diehardoab at gmail.com. That is the email address where you can find us. Wow, what is wrong with me right now? Um, you can also find us on Twitter at Liam G. Billingham at diehardoab. Phil? Yeah, I am on Twitter at Philip Gawthorne. Yeah, uh, let's—I don't know. <laughs> um, but really... no, I would love to hear from you. And in fact, our next guest for our next episode, we actually have a really positive story about how we connected 
on Twitter. So it's not all it's not all bad that out was there in the, in the social media hellscape. Yeah, no, I've met a lot of uh, I've made I've made actual human friends on social media. I'm not afraid to admit it. Um, you can be our friend too. Maybe we have to sort of want to see. <laughs> we have to vet you. Yeah, to die, yeah. show that you, you're real and not some kind of. Are you cipher. cool enough to talk <laughs> no, about no, a thirty-year-old yeah. movie for an no, hour? No, just are you real and not an AI or yeah, pretending exactly. to be something that you're not? But if yeah, you're we're like desperate a, for but friends, but if you're like a cool AI, I'm down with it. <laughs> uh, Diehardoab at gmail.com. Please email us. Reach out. Tell your friends. Rate, review, subscribe to the show. Should I read another review? Yeah. Quick, should I read yeah. one more? All right, this says, why the fuck did they talk about Last Action Hero for 90 minutes? Wow, this is a really up-to-date review. No, I'm kidding. Let me see what we have here. I didn't I didn't plan on this, so I, uh, I'm making this up as I go. Okay, recent review of the show. <clears throat> I, okay, I have one here that I like. Movie Dots Connected. From Peach Plum Pear 6, as a film lover whose preferred genre is decidedly not action movies, I'm so pleasantly surprised by Die Hard on a Blank. Phil and Liam are already inspiring me to expand my own taste in movies with their spirited conversations about the many threads unspooling from Die Hard and the in-depth level of critique, insight, and dot-connecting film history they're bringing to each episode so far. Can't wait for more. What a beautifully written review. See, we can talk about more than action movies. Like, The Hard Way, starring James <laughs> Michael J. Fox. Yeah, or Tango Listen, and Cash. Like, you... our, our cultural like lexicon is infinite. Commando. I, mean, I, just, I just mentioned the Czech New Wave, so I know what, pe- what party people like. Uh, thank you for that review. That's lovely. Next time on the show... Yes, thank you. The Fugitive. Yeah. One of the great movies. Of perfect the 90s. organism. Uh, an, uh, a ticking clock of perfection. Starring the king, Joe Pantoliano. No, Harrison <laughs> Ford, but both, actually. Yes, They're yes. both really, really great. And uh, my man, Tommy Lee Jones, who is one of my all-time favorite movie hey, stars. Hey, Phil, I don't care. I'm Liam Billingham. That was the Simpsons uh, sat- satirical version of that character actually nailed. Thank um, you. Kudos. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm Liam Billingham. I'm Philip Gawthorne. And we'll be back next time with some new FBI guys, I guess. Die Hard on a Blank is a podcast created and hosted by Philip Gawthorne. Liam Billingham co-hosts and produces the show. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at DieHardOAB. Rate, review, follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Most importantly, tell your movie podcast-loving friends about Die Hard on a Blank. Special thanks to Suki Chu. See you next time on Die Hard on a Blank. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.